Hey everyone, Austin here. On today's episode, Ken and I are excited to share a few audio collected from a Baltimore home gathering, the purpose of which was to discuss the topics of equity, gentrification, and racial disparity within the city. This gathering, which consisted of individuals living, working, or associated with Baltimore, Maryland, was organized and led by our friend and architectural designer, Gabriel Maslin. Gabe, as both a resident of Baltimore and a designer, is deeply interested in the forces that are currently shaping the city's neighborhoods, along with the presence of social inequality for its residents. Prior to this recording, Gabe organized several tours of the city to explore the different social and economic institutions currently influencing Baltimore's built environment. In addition to Gabe, we want to thank our friends Ren and Adan. Ren for the use of her home during this discussion, and Adan for providing neighborhood context during several of our tours. So with that, I'll say thanks for joining us for another episode of The Table Sessions, and enjoy. When I talk to my grandparents about growing up in East Baltimore, they speak fondly of their childhood. As they would have you remember it, Baltimore during World War II and just after was teeming with children playing ball games in alleys, women scrubbing the marble stoops of row homes, and men marching to and from the steel yards and breweries. It was an idyllic place for poor immigrant families who had strong community ties and left their doors unlocked. Today, Baltimore is still a diverse city with many strong communities and a unique art scene. The physical landscape of the city has changed significantly in both good and bad ways. When we see the problems of crime and vacancy that permeate the city, the stories of a bygone Baltimore start to seem especially appealing, but we can't make the mistake of sensationalizing a golden past. The problems I mentioned that the modern city faces are a physical manifestation of structural racism that has always been present in Baltimore, even if it was once better concealed or more easily ignored. So I brought my friends, many of whom are fellow Baltimoreans, to discuss what this manifestation looks like, to see if we could begin to offer each other a deeper understanding of the root causes. been um, living here for a couple years and um, I just feel like every day that I live here I become more aware of disparity in the city and that um, there's just huge swaths of empty houses in certain parts of the city and there's schools that are abandoned all over the place um, that I've seen through work and um, and then 
you go into places like Harbor East where there's all this construction and it just looks totally different. It's clearly being treated way differently than these other communities. And so I wanted to have like a discussion about like, why is Baltimore like this? And what has made the city look the way it does? Because it just seems to me like something isn't right. (laughs) And I don't like not talking about it. Like I think that especially people that aren't from Baltimore just don't have a sense of it. And so I, I want to put it in like a context, like a constructive context. So yeah, so then I started looking into this, um, this professor from Morgan State, um, Lawrence Halperin, who kind of coined this white L black butterfly concept about the population in Baltimore, where there's this strip down the center that's sort of like an area of much higher wealth and much more building and much more investment. It's relatively diverse, although higher. I mean, there's a lot of white people in that zone. Um, whereas the black butterfly, which is most of the rest of the city on either side of this strip is characterized by very disinvested neighborhoods and it's overwhelmingly black. I think it's like somewhere near 95% or some, something like that. So there's some pretty clear like issues here with like race. The black butterfly, it's a zone that's not perfectly defined. It's a description of demographic regions that are very substantially black in Baltimore City. The segregation ordinances of 1910 to 1913 made Baltimore the first American city to establish legal codification for racial zoning way before the idyllic descriptions of World War II era Baltimore came to be and way before this idea of the black butterfly zone was thought of. After these ordinances were struck down by the Supreme Court in 1917, these policies persisted through redlining the discriminatory practice of barring loans or offering very expensive loans to people deemed to live in hazardous or high-risk neighborhoods. These neighborhoods were labeled by government surveyors and were often based simply on race and ethnicity. Today, redlining is outlawed, but race still determines much of private and public investment. It's a problem that requires constant attentiveness and radical regulation of lending behavior in order to achieve more equitable outcomes for people in Baltimore City. I think there's an underlying theme here, which is that most people think of low income as a specific type. So I think that the real problem is that people have a picture in their mind of what low income looks like. And oftentimes people fail to understand that low income includes, you know, working class retired people who live on a fixed budget who don't have a pension or teachers um, young unmarried teachers my cousin is one of those people and I think that that is how we end up with bad racist policies like we have low income as a term carries a lot of stereotypes but it's important to remember what it literally means for 2013 The standard for low income in the United States is a family of four that makes less than $47,248 per year, according to the National Center for Children in Poverty. The low income community transcends race, but many people associate the idea of low income with black and or Hispanic faces. While it is true that higher proportions of these racial and ethnicity backgrounds experience low incomes, 
It creates false labels for the many, many people that do not fit the stereotype. And this is a problem because as we saw with redlining, many policies and choices are influenced by misconceived perceptions of what it means to be low income. As a result, black people face more difficulty gaining or maintaining economic standing, while whites are more likely to be supported regardless of their economic position. It is expensive to be low income as low-income people often pay subprime interest rates more for lower-quality food and have low tax-to-income benefit ratios. Like we have. And I think that one of the conversations that, as you're looking at public housing, that you need to go back to is this idea that modernism could cure social ills, which is how the whole public housing prototype came about, right? So... Um, slum clearing was basically like an attempt to destroy people's um, communities that they had built themselves, poorly or not. Um, that's not really the conversation, but this idea that you could kind of sweep out and demolish and rebuild with a modernist cleanliness that could then cure and adapt those people who lived in these structures. So I think there was like an attempt to re-socialize a specific class of people, and that's you know resulted in a lot of terrible things and has proven itself as one of the worst things I think our society has ever done. Do you think that's a product of modernism, modern style building, or that oh, yeah. it's like built into the ethos of of modernism? Yeah, I, I do. I think that the philosophy of modernism was to not embrace the complexity of yeah. how we live. Modernism is a post-World War II philosophical movement that rejected institutions associated with human misery during the war era. In terms of art and design, it's associated with minimalism or the effort to get maximum function from the minimum amount of design. How we live. It really was an attempt to kind of isolate people and and I don't know that the intent was necessarily malicious but I think that there's a lot of ill placed authority of like oh we're gonna fix this kind of class of people and I think one of the things that uh, modernism showed is that space is a privilege and it's usually privileged by race Equity and equality are ideas based on concepts of fairness. Fairness is central to successful urban design, but it is important to recognize that there are major differences between equity and equality. Equality promotes fairness in a vacuum. By this standard, every individual gets the same treatment because it assumes that for these purposes, everyone is essentially the same. On the other hand, the principle of equity recognizes that we are not all the same and that while we're all people, we each come from different backgrounds and have been subjected to very different kinds of lives based on the identity we wear in society and many other factors. It can also be much more complex because practicing equity forces us to choose criteria to address and in doing so establish which criteria are most significant to us as a whole. It's something that can be really difficult to achieve because everyone has an, a different idea about which criteria is correct. So uh, one of the things that I think failed with public housing 
that took this modernist approach is that it failed to, as you were saying, understand the, the complexity of the ways in people live. And so you see a lot of these post-war uh, housing projects that don't take into the fact that uh, the people that they're designing for needs a level of complex uh, and variety of different public spaces of scale and of type. And so it took that away and it created this vast amounts of open space for the purpose of surveillance, um, I think, and, and just not really uh, taking to consideration um, that the people that they're designing for still needs a healthy and vibrant uh, place to live. And uh, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking about the paths of walking is that um, for me, for example, there's places in, um, in some of the most expensive developments in the city that I don't feel comfortable for because <clears throat> I'm realizing and I'm recognizing that the space that I'm in that I'm in not necessarily designed with a young black man in mind and so that space is privileged and I'm not privy to that because of the color of my skin and so um, I mean we have seen many examples on the news of uh, black families in the park having a barbecue and they have the police called on to them and so and, and I think that, uh, that one of the things that has been known to me and I've been very conscious of is that space is a privilege. And um, whether you have earned the right to be in that space or not, um, it's based off of the color of your skin. And um, when I was giving my uh, thesis presentation, one of the stories that I shared is that uh, when I was at UVA, um, I had earned the right based off of my marriage to be in that space and and so I was coming back from track practice one day and and I had on full UVA attire and I was stopped by a police officer there and he first thing he said to me he demanded that I show him some ID and uh, immediately I understood because I was doing nothing wrong I was walking so I understood that uh, stopping me because I'm a black man walking into a, in, in a white space and so I showed him my UVA-issued ID as opposed to my state ID. And once I did that, immediately his reaction towards me changed. And so that was just kind of a constant reminder to me that no matter what I've done to earn my right in this space, because of the color of my skin, um, I'm not privileged to own the space that I've earned my right into. So as somebody with experience, in, in that, how can we design spaces that are more inviting for everybody? Do you have any ideas about that? I think it's the team that you assemble. So if you have multiple diverse uh, voices at the table, not only making the decisions policy-wise, but also designing the space, you can bring a collective amount of experiences and points of view that help make for something that is uh, authentic and something that is um, stronger. The issues behind, or like maybe the issues or opportunities behind public housing, for example, and just the way that different groups of people operate, it's so complex that literally the best answer is just say, we need diverse people planning it because there's really not one or two simple answers. It's just like, we have to see what happens if we just get everybody together and plan it, which hasn't been the case for the last 50, 100 years. I, that worries me though, too, just saying that, like we get a yeah, diverse group of people together because there's so many things about that 
um, first off, does it matter like who's organizing it to begin with and who's doing the inviting? I feel like as a white person even talking about this subject, I feel like maybe I'm not the one who's supposed to have started the conversation, but I'm just rationalizing it. Like if I want to talk about it, I can't just wait for someone else to bring it up. Um, and then also um, I was listening to this talk by a ex-Sun reporter. I guess he's retired now. Um, he He's written a book called um, Not in My Neighborhood. You have it? Yes, and Robert read it. Where is it? Pull it out. It's Antero Piatella, I think. Yeah, Not in My Neighborhood, How Bigotry Shaped a Great American City. I was listening to this guy present to um, students at Morgan State, and he was talking about the history of Baltimore and um, and talking about how neighborhoods have shifted racially in the city over time. And there has been like pretty significant changes there, like areas that we know of as very white now or very black once uh, may have been very different. And um, the reason I'm bringing this up is because he made this point about how an area near Mount Vernon was, it's it, 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 I think it was Upton actually, because they were talking about Upton so Upton used to be like a, um, I've heard it been compared to like Harlem in New York um, in that there was like a very high living standard, like what's the word that I'm trying to come up with? There's just like a lot of middle-class black people living together who had like really uh, good living conditions. And there was a time when like they were trying to shift like some people in the government wanted to like cleanse the community racially and make it more white. And part of the reason they were able to do it is because one of the black delegates in the city legislature wanted to make another neighborhood like the cultural black hub of the city. And so they supported this measure to like divide people. So everybody's interested in, in like tribalism sometimes, I think, or I, it's, I don't know if that's like the right word but like i think everybody kind of has this like us mentality sometimes and a lot of times it's reflected in race and if you're trying to get people together to design for spaces that have a broader sense of privilege to them like how do you get people to like get over that hurdle being a part of a community of people like yourselves like that idea like feels really good. And that's like one of the basis of humanity is like being amongst people you identify with. But then at the same time, we're as designers or and urban designers, we're saying, well, no, everyone, everyone can't just be in their own pods. Everyone has to talk to each other all the time. Like we want this to happen. It's almost contradictory in some ways, right? Where like at the same time, you want both. You want a diverse mix of people, but at the same time, you want to be with people that you like and identify with that have the same cultural values as you. One of the things that we're talking about in another project we're working on, but we're talking about the community brand identity and the three identities of a community. You have the internal identity, which is the people that live there. They, they know the boundaries of what they think they're responsible for, and they know the perceived center or the hub that they would identify with. And then you have the kind of um, outsider identity or the tourist identity or the visitor identity. Like I'm a, I'm a visitor right now in Hamden or in this neighborhood, right? So like I would, if I didn't know where I was going, I would just go to that street over there. I don't know what it's even called, but it's, that's where all the businesses are and that's the density and the use pattern is different there. And 
other visitors like myself might congregate there. But that might be the extent of how I perceive this neighborhood to be. I don't actually know at what point do you know that you're not in Hamden anymore? Like, is there a street? Is there a, is there a hard divider? Is there a, a park? Or is it something that you might know that I don't know? And then like the third identity is the identity from a branding slash developer slash real estate slash almost like Google Maps identity where people that are selling the idea of living in this neighborhood or selling or marketing this to a broader audience. And then, you know, Google Maps like aggregates developer data and like communities have like depending on the how harsh the boundary is, it's like however um, porous that boundary is. It, it, it changes whether those three identities like overlap and they reinforce each other or, or whether they are in direct conflict of each other. I started this assumption believing that like, the people that lived in a community and their interpretation of it was the only correct interpretation. But, you know, there is like the visitor interpretation, which is also generally can be correct in other ways or the how you market it. Can, it could be different, you know, or like this idea that, you know, we don't all have to have the same exact definition of our own communities if, if i'm never going to know hamden as intimately as i don't even know if i'm saying it right as, as intimately as you guys do but i still have an idea of what this community is and whether i am invited to participate in it is you know it might depend on who i am or how i look or the color of my skin or how much income i have like it some communities that that that's kind of the whether you can cross over that boundary it determines that Robert, you're talking about the privilege of being able to be in a space or feeling like that privilege was given to you or or um, um, I, I guess the, the thing that I'm kind of looking for is how can communities both develop their own identity and feel like they have equity in their uh, their communities and the space that they create and then also feel like they have equity in other communities and vice versa. And how, like, how do we create a dialogue or a, like a political strata or um, a power dynamic to where both the internal group and the tourist or the other or the outside, how, how do we create an environment where you feel like you have both internal and external equitable power? Something I was listening to was, um, I guess it's a TED podcast and they invited this woman who's an urbanist and architect named Liz Ogbu and she was talking about Lagos in Nigeria and basically just saying that when political entities are trying to deter or trying to determine how to brand communities it it comes down to profitability and profitability means that there's a certain type of city uh, that you are, that you present that is uh, not really real the ultimate like develop for neighborhood that will sell wealth and like promote business and promote international investment in this case in nigeria they're trying to appeal to like everywhere else in the world to come and participate and it's just not like that vision for the city it doesn't reflect the people there at all um and it's not something that's actually real in other countries either there's like a made-up uh idea about like what a nice place is like poor people don't ever go away and their people that are poor are absolutely necessary in a capitalist society capitalism requires them to exist and so if you're constantly just pushing them around then you produce neglect 
So just in general and probably legally, there need to be different standards other than earnings, like happiness, for example, that we're shooting for that are like priority. You know, whether you're in the red or in the black, it's like things are a lot more complicated in how you do define that. Capitalism and the need to make a profit isn't going to go away. And and therefore, the need to brand a community is not going to go away. But it's how you spin it and how you craft that narrative. Uh, architects are myth creators and can be myth affirmers as well. So the reason why we go to a Chinatown, because it creates a certain myth that um, it's not necessarily based off of any fact, but it's one that crafts a narrative and a story that we're drawn to. You, you go to the um, National Mall in D.C. and you see the Greek-inspired architecture. It's not based off of any fact, but it's a myth that we're drawn to. And so how you craft the narrative and the myth of a community of what they want to represent them, um, I think that's a step in the direction. And it's a step that can be used for branding purposes, but also in allowing the community to have a hand in how they want to be told. It seems like it comes down to like, how do we tell the most inclusive story possible? Well, I, th I think there's another layer too, um, and that is something that is an imposed myth or a self-created myth, right? So I think about Upton, um, you're talking about Upton, and um, I'm actually working on Upton right now. and. Upton is incredibly resourceful and culturally rich, and um, they had um, in that neighborhood some really amazing musical venues and theaters, and um, the first African American Gentlemen's Club, which was the Arch Social Club, and that um, club actually just won a grant, a national grant um, from the National Geographic Main Streets competition. And so there has been a conversation about making that an arts district, um, which is, I think, awesome. I think it's a step in the right direction for Baltimore. Can you just like elaborate on what the arts district actually means? So the arts district designation means that it's available for special funding. Um, it, um, there's op grant opportunities that are not available in other parts of the city. And typically, um, arts districts have kind of been exclusionary, if you will. There hasn't been a lot of push towards preserving these African-American spaces that were self-created, largely um, managed and run and, you know, black-owned clubs and things like that. And so I think that this is almost like a step in the right direction. I don't know that it will undo anything, but it will preserve buildings that are important. Um, it will hopefully reinvigorate and hopefully not in the wrong kinds of hand, in the wrong hands, but you know, potentially there's an opportunity for um, some of those businesses to, you know, facade grants and things like that. I would love to see this strip come back because it's beautiful. It's architecturally rich. It's culturally rich. It's so important for our city. Um, Billy Holiday played in those clubs, but I think it, it has to be about ownership. You know, I'm not from here and I'm didn't go to those clubs. I think it needs to be, you know, the grandson or somebody, you know, somebody who lives in that neighborhood. But there should also be a, um, a direct and very explicit effort on the part of the city to help bring that community back because the city has been very explicit about helping other communities come back. 
I kind of wonder about the arts district designation. Maybe I don't understand it enough, but does that mean make it like a place that artists from elsewhere are going to move into and then start imposing their... So <laughs> I'm just going to cut to the chase. Are you worried about gentrification? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, there is always fear of gentrification um, I, and, and arts do bring other things like businesses and coffee shops and theaters and those things bring condos and you know development but that's why I think it's important for the people who live in the community to have first opportunity to own those places because I think people inherently assume that improvement and gentrification are negative things and I do gentrification has a negative connotation but I, I think if you talk to people in those communities that have seen improvements and they've seen their house values go up um, and they watch their vacants on their block get bought and fixed up by young couples, when I talk to those people, they're not really worried about the improvements in their neighborhood. They're just glad that something is happening. So, And then on the flip side, you do see people get priced out um, or you see people who don't own their rents get inflated and, that, and then they have to move out. So that is always an, a concern. But I think there is a, a, a way to safeguard against some of that. And, and unfortunately, those of us on the design side don't have a lot of say in that. I've heard it put um, as simply as those communities don't mind people coming in. They just mind when they feel pushed out. And it, maybe it's, it's that simple. It's that they're in support of their communities becoming more robust and becoming more economically viable. It's just they want to know that they have a place in that community once that happens. It's no secret that arts districts make money. Is there something other than profitability that we can potentially incentivize in development? For example, if you put the money in the right hands of people through like taxes, like if something is made an arts district and then you can then you're legally allowed to take taxpayer money to put towards it and from a public perspective, you have to put the right people in charge to spend that money. Hopefully the people in those positions are incentivized by something other than profitability, like their job description or like, you know, social equity. If you have a written legal policy on how things should be spent, then profitability can be evenly distributed, potentially. It's very troubling to be like, well, we have to just hope that the policymakers will, you know, do the right thing. Cause that's not something Baltimore is famous for. I mean, I, I even think it, it, it can go down to just putting the money in the hands of the business owner who's been there for 30 years. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's a tricky thing because I, I think gentrification it has become such a popular, polarized word that people just are ready to throw it out. Yeah. And it's different for me because I'm the fourth generation of my family to live in Hamden. And... Uh, I, I do remember when the shops on the avenue were almost all people that lived in the neighborhood, and now it's barely any. I do have that negative connotation of gentrification because it does, I have seen it push people out and then, you know, re replace it with this like bastardized version of our culture. I don't know, you know, what that really means for the quality of life of the working class people here, but I don't really see a lot of them anymore. So I'm assuming it's not good. Yeah. It's like, it's like, how do we allow an authentic place to grow 
in a way that doesn't result in a Disney World effect. Because ultimately, when things are scaled, they start to scale towards profit margins. And Main Streets, when they're in their inception, they are privately owned. And you know the people who run the corner store. But then when there's this this tipping point where the corner store turns into the Royal Farms and the coffee shop um, turns into the Starbucks... And there's, there's a tipping point from just an economic standpoint, but then there's a tipping point for the identity of that place as well. Uh, I think just because in my thesis capstone, I explored this because I had to do it not only from an architectural solution, but from a real estate development solution as well. And so I did my uh, work in the Middle East Old Town neighborhood. And so I think it one of the, the strategies that I employed was prioritizing the type of businesses that became a part of the redevelopment. So uh, for me, it was very important that I highlight and I emphasize the fact that um, a barbershop should be at the corner in in the uh, hub of the development because the importance of a barbershop in black communities is, is vital not only from a political standpoint but from a, uh, a commerce standpoint. It became some of the, the ways in which people are able to become business owners and um, I'm not sure if it will still become Disneyland-ish but I think that's a start. When I think about the neighborhood that Gabe and I used to live in, it seemed, and you can correct me, Gabe, if you think that I'm wrong, but like right across the street, we lived like right across MLK, and then on the other side was housing, like public housing projects, right? Right. And even though we were right next to Mount Vernon, it felt worlds apart, and there was no business that I can think of in terms of like places to get something to eat or um, like a barber shop, even that was very close and it wasn't necessarily a walkable area either because it's like very high traffic it's like right next to like an on-ramp for a highway yeah yeah that's true yeah that that's the highway that like was supposed to connect 95 to 70 and they like just ended the project and now there's that a highway that goes you drive on it for like three or four minutes and then you just get off back into the city and it bifurcates west baltimore yeah yeah I don't know. I guess like what I'm wondering is, is it possible to have a community or a neighborhood that is well functioning that doesn't have something like that to ground it like a business? I I think also go back to the question of authenticity. It's also understanding how different cultures use space and giving it the proper complexity that it deserves. Uh, So going back to your point of what happens if the barbershop becomes a haircuttery, well, a black barbershop wouldn't become a haircuttery because it's the space is used differently. So I'm in the barbershop every week, every two weeks. I can't go longer than two weeks without a haircut. And there's people that are in the barbershop every day because these aren't just places to exchange for an exchange of goods or commodity services. It's a place in which you can have uh, cultural communication it's a it's a place where if you just want to talk smack about the basketball game that's what you do and so I I think um, it's 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 understanding how how space is used to be a cultural communicator and it's different across groups and I think that um, how you 
create spaces of authenticity is understanding that and giving it the the proper complexity and due diligence to understand that that it deserves so in allowing a neighborhood to be its authentic self does authenticity for that cultural hub mean a potentially exclusiveness to the way that that hub is is run and exists and in trying to create a more equitable environment for everybody to feel like they have a place in any environment is there a place for outside communities in in that should it be exactly that in its entirety or is that a place that would also see some type of shift in some larger dialogue i think there is a place and i think there is a place because um black history and identity is so much entwined with what we would consider white culture and white identity it's there is nothing that there it's, it's too hard to separate and distill the the, the difference between the two uh, and, and and um you know, there was a, an, an author that I was reading. He had a saying, which I, blackness in America is as American as apple pie. You can find so many instances in American culture where blackness has uh, made its presence and um, vice versa. And so to answer your question, I do think there is a place. And I, I it just comes down to the fact that we have to get comfortable in and, and understanding that and um, realizing that we're all a part of the American identity. And there, you know, there is no distinction. There is no difference between my history and your history. I think it's also incredibly complex because, you know, as I'm looking around this room, you know, we could be a stock photo for diversity if we wanted to be but I think in a lot of ways we're incredibly similar and I think it's because we come from similar family structures and socioeconomic backgrounds um, education education, attainment um, life goals you know the things that we want um, in our lives are fairly similar I think we're all um, kind of early in our careers and headed towards great th- things, hopefully. And at the same time, you know, it's you guys are one of my subsets of people that share my cu- kind of cultural identity. As you add on all of the things that you are or that we are as individuals and as, you know, um, people living in Baltimore and people living in Maryland and people living in, in the United States, it, it becomes exponentially complex. So Richard Sennett had, uh, in his book, uh, Uses of Disorder, he talks about there being a a myth of community. The fact that I believe if I look like you, I have a similar background as you, I understand you. So therefore, there's no need for me to actually go out and talk to you because I already understand. And because we all look alike, we are a community. And he actually said that that's a myth that you are not a community and that and in fact a more stronger sense of community is when there is difference among you so because i don't look like you 
I have to be forced in order to understand you. I have to be forced to talk to you. I have to be engaged in dialogue. Uh, just as we are in this room, we have to have uh, a dialogue that can be sometimes uncomfortable where I bring up my experiences that you may not be aware of. Thereby, we have a stronger sense of community because we're actually forced to talk and to understand one another as opposed to me assuming that uh, I understand you, therefore we are, because I look like you, therefore we are a community. Um, which, is, which is why um, I, I, I think, as we were talking about way early into, in the conversation about um, a, a homogenized community is what people actually want. And I, I think that that is, that is a false sense of community. Um, and I, I do think that diversity and diversity and not only in uh, socially and, and racially, but economically and education, I think that is, is how you build a stronger sense of community. Hey everyone, Austin again. We want to take a moment to thank everybody who generously donated their time and voices over the course of this discussion. Conversations like these are complex, uncomfortable at times, and often include personal bias. So we deeply appreciate everyone's involvement and unique perspectives. Coming up, Gabe returns, this time sitting down with architectural designer Adon Ramos to discuss several case studies of public housing that showcase how housing design has impacted the equity of space in downtown Baltimore City. Back in a moment. Here we go, Adan Ramos and Gabriel Maslin here. We are at my house and we just watched a video uh, about the Baltimore plan in from 1953, where they talk about uh, housing conditions in the city. So we have some comments about that and I have some questions. I would also just say like, you should probably start off with like, your a description of your own personal relationship with the city. Yeah, so I grew up in Ellicott City um, since I was four years old, which is a suburb of Baltimore, um, about 11 miles west of the heart of Baltimore City. Growing up, I only really came to Baltimore for Orioles games and came and left. Um, so that's that was my relationship for the first couple decades of my life. Um, but when I think I was 19, I got a, my first architecture internship. I would take the bus in from Ellicott City, and the bus would take you on Route 40 straight into Baltimore, and I got to see the condition of the neighborhood and pretty surprising to me to see something so close to my house that I had no idea it was there. Um, in architecture school, I was very interested in, in public interest design and really thought about those things more in third world countries, but to see a great need for uh, 
social justice and equity so close to my home was pretty eye-opening. So my interest in the city of Baltimore and specifically um, the west side of Baltimore has been going on for quite some time. So I thought that um, the most interesting thing about this Baltimore plan video is that there are a lot of things in common uh, with the complaints that they had about the condition of housing uh, in the city. They talked about vermin issues, which is a big problem in most cities, but particularly in Baltimore public housing, it is a major problem. It's the number one complaint that the um, Housing Authority of Baltimore City gets. Um, I thought it was interesting the way they talk the language they use to describe the city. Like they use words like shame and um, they use sarcasm, like describing kind of like run down areas with broken things as Baltimore playgrounds. This fall I was in an urban design studio, which happened to do its project in Harlem Park, which is the neighborhood just north of Southwest Baltimore and faces many of the the same issues, but even at a more elevated scale. Uh, they were, obviously they were planned to be good, but uh, what ended up happening was a combination of lack of maintenance in those areas, in addition to the fact that they are at the center of the blocks, so they have little visibility. And because the backs of these row homes face the parks, there's a lack of ownership to them. So there was a lack of maintenance because no one felt like they they were really a part. Why, why do you say that there's a lack of ownership to inner block parks? Like just looking at it, I would think it's rather intimate. In... Our studio, we looked at a few um, neighborhoods that are similar in scale to Harlem Park, one of which was Georgetown, which has very similar sized blocks and also has um, these inner block green spaces. The difference being that the public cannot access those the heart of those blocks, so the, the heart of those blocks belong 100% to the residents of those blocks. In Harlem Park, they're publicly accessible, but they're since they're at the heart of um, the block, there is very little visibility from major streets to those, so anyone from the public can walk back into those areas and be hidden from um, the street. It, it's neither here nor there. It's not completely public, a public square that's visible from, from major streets, like some of the, the blocks some some of the the green squares in southwest baltimore are like that like franklin square um it is is has good visibility and is uh it's, it's a nice space but when they're not completely enclosed and owned by the residents or completely open and visible then they really just become pockets of not very defensible space so they became breeding grounds for um, not only disrepair and trash, but uh, crime as well. Perkins Homes, which is right off of um, Pratt Street, their design, they're block-shaped. They're just long rectangular buildings with lines of, of row apartments. And they're designed so that the public spaces are, are 100% visible 
from the street. There's virtually no area that a cruising car can't look and see everything that's going on from. And the idea is that, that they could be easily surveyed, surveilled, and you, they wouldn't become these havens for garbage or crime-related behavior because they're on display. And that's been a huge issue in that like people talk about how these houses are designed inhumanely because people don't have a sense of privacy and they're basically being watched. So a good question to ask is like, is that a privilege that uh, that people in public housing should should have? Is that like sense of privacy? Um. So it's a very difficult question to answer, but what comes to mind? the book defensible space i'm blanking on the author's name but yes oscar newman um the premise uh in in addition to good visibility there is a strong sense of ownership of spaces very much in relation to the broken window theory where an area is falling into disrepair then it'll kind of snowball if spaces given direct ownership to someone, then they have an incentive to upkeep that space. And hopefully the upkeeping of certain spaces will snowball in, in the positive direction. So I, I think there should be a balance. There definitely needs to be areas that have visibility from cars and buildings. There can also be more private spaces as long as those areas Uh, are given ownership by adjacent residents and then those residents become the the eyes on on the street rather than surveying vehicles Mm -hmm. a point that i wanted to make before i forgot uh so this is backtracking a little bit the last piece about the i guess failure of the inner block park in harlem park is as i described the row homes on the periphery of the blocks were originally inhabited by middle-class residents. So those row homes are actually pretty big, something like 16 to 18 feet wide and up to 60 or 70 feet deep, three stories tall with an English basement. So that those houses that were once occupied by one middle-class family now it's not feasible for low-income residents to to occupy that whole space. So what has happened is that they've been subdivided to an extent. The neighborhood actually isn't a huge fan of, of subdividing them, but the point that I'm trying to make right now is that in Harlem Park, what, what we heard through... So the studio had a lot of contact with the Maryland Department of Housing, and they filled us in on some of the concerns that community members have expressed and one of those concerns was the subdivision of row homes or any form of multifamily which really handicaps any developers who are trying to go in and and have a feasible uh, investment. I think it's a combination of a fear of outsiders moving into the neighborhood but also there has been a history of absentee landlords subdividing these houses and renting them out so there's a lot of fear 
of that as well. So that that's why there's a lot of opposition towards that. But to get back to my original point with the larger middle class row homes being kind of split, it what happens is that not everyone living in a row home has direct access out their back door into the inner block park. If you wanted to let your kid go play in the park, they would have to go down the stairs, walk out the front door, walk all the way around the strip of row homes to get into the into the park. And then your visibility out of your back window in your kitchen, if something were to happen, you couldn't just walk out your back door. You would also have to walk down the stairs and walk around the strip of row homes. So that also added to the lack of ownership of those spaces um, because many residences don't live on the first floor. It seems like the inner block park is very close to being to working like architecturally. It would just take a couple small moves to convert those to effective spaces according to like kind of what we've come up with as what seems like the ideal um, private public space combination, which to be clear, it seems like what we're saying is the best case scenario is to have a block or group of houses that has a almost entirely enclosed shared private space on the inside of the block with access from the backs, right? That seems like the ideal. I think that typology can work and has worked in examples like Georgetown and others. I think there would be a fear of implementing that typology in Harlem Park and adjacent areas, basically because of the existing high crime rate. Having a place that is almost completely closed off seems like there would be uh, a lot of opposition from both planners and maybe even the community, even though there is that uh, ownership of the space that we keep touching on. How is Baltimore either a welcome or unwelcome place? Baltimore is definitely a city that is organized in neighborhoods, and each neighborhood has its own kind of characteristics. Um, Just a question about that comment. When you say it's organized into neighborhoods, how is that different from any other city? I guess it's not. It just... Personally, I feel that those neighborhoods are very emphasized here. In what way? Like architecturally or like in the way that areas are like marketed or like... I think a good example is relationship between Federal Hill and Fells Point where there is a clear demographic shift in age and family size, that those kinds of drastic demographic shifts obviously also come into play in terms of race on the east and west versus the north and south. The classic um, diagram, the the white L and back black butterfly um, that people describe um, in terms of Baltimore race demographics, those kind of drastic shifts I think happen outside of race as well um, as I described with age as well as 
a little bit about uh, kind of lifestyle. I mean, that that can be said about, like you said, any other city. There's people of of certain demographics kind of congregate together with each other. Um, so maybe it's not that that drastic as I'm describing, but um, from my perception, and I know a lot of people have a similar perception, is that Baltimore has more drastic shifts between areas. I wouldn't say that the areas are necessarily unwelcoming. I definitely have bounced around the entire city and, and feel like I, 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 I never really feel unwelcome. Um, but the, the areas are definitely different, especially for the fact that Baltimore City isn't that, that large of a geographic area. I agree. I think that you touched on something that I was going to say, was, which is just that the divides between neighborhoods seem to be deeper in terms of race or wealth in the city um, in Baltimore than in other places. And it was reminding me of something I was reading out of The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. And um, I just want to read something from it real fast uh, that stood out to me about the use of the word neighborhood. This is chapter six, the use of city neighborhoods. Neighborhood is a word that has come to sound like a valentine. As a sentimental concept, neighborhood is harmful to city planning. It leads to attempts at warping city life into imitations of town or suburban life. Sentimentality plays with sweet intentions in place of good sense. A successful city neighborhood is a place that keeps sufficiently abreast of its problems so it is not destroyed by them. An unsuccessful neighborhood is a place that is overwhelmed by its defects and problems and is progressively more helpless before them. Our cities contain all degrees of success and failure, but on the whole, we Americans are poor at handling city neighborhoods as can be seen by the long accumulations of failures in our great gray belts on the one hand, by the turfs of rebuilt city on the other hand. So I keep hearing that people describe that Baltimore is a city of neighborhoods. And when I read that, I was surprised to hear her say that the term neighborhood is actually a detrimental idea in cities because it refers to this idea of like siloing areas, basically. But um, I think it's a good point in that... Like, there is a lack of fluidity um, in the city, which is, like, a huge problem. It's definitely interesting. I think it's a little bit overstated I th- because I'm sure Jane Jacobs would agree that there is value in sense of place. And the term neighborhood, a lot of the times, it is geographically incorrect. Like, Mount Vernon is referred to which encompasses like South Baltimore and Mount Vernon and Locust Point. Um, But it is Mount Vernon in quotations. And that kind of has its own sense of place. Um, So those kind of social constructs of neighborhood definitely have their, their strong suits. You want culture, you want sense of place, etc. The lack of fluidity in terms of the urban fabric 
I think is hugely relevant in Baltimore between the highway to nowhere, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, 83, the, the list goes on. Um, but those, those are the major the highway elements um, that, that cause division. So that, that is definitely a negative, and having that fluidity between neighborhoods is, is uh, definitely needed. What I gather from the quote is that she is also warning against, in addition to physical barriers, creating social barriers. So say there is, there is a city with, with continuous urban fabric, but there's a small portion that refers to itself as a neighborhood. There could be some negative aspects of that. What I think she was saying was that the term neighborhood, describing it as Valentine and this idea of bringing in suburban into urban, uh, I see that more as as the negatives to the term neighborhood than just condemning it completely because I think there there are some positives. I am inclined after having this discussion to make some rules about what block you should be and kind of have some specific guidelines for that. For example, I talk about how blocks that have enclosed spaces, we could make a list of criteria that they should meet to be good spaces. We could make a list of criteria that public, totally public spaces should meet. Like, for example, connectiveness to streets on all sides to a park or to a school something like that and then kind of make a list of those rules for each type of space and then walk around in a neighborhood like we did in southwest baltimore and look at each take a map where we've color-coded different types of use and say like does this meet the criteria that we suggested and then we can say then we can refer to that and say, okay, well, this isn't meeting the criteria. Does this space look like it's being, it's successful? And that's kind of like a, a, a process that I can see being like beneficial because then you can learn to adjust what your rules for good space should be and if you can even have them at all. So I think that kind of wraps up my thoughts about it sort of with like a call to action about like another step in this process. Um, But anyway, thanks for, for joining me today. No problem. Happy to be here. Hey everyone. Ken and I just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode. The Table Sessions podcast is produced and edited by me, Austin Raymond, and Ken Filler and is a product of The Table Sessions Media, the collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on bandcamp.com, such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. Also, if you'd like to support our cause in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the table sessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.